Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Father, we want to thank you that you care for us, God, and, and demonstrating that, you're, that, you, that you actually are concerned about us, Lord God, is the evidence uh, of the scriptures, of the pages and the words that we have sitting in our laps right this moment, that you have preserved your word from generation to generation so that we would know you, so that we would know where we've come from, we would know what purpose we serve here, where we're going, Lord God. You haven't left us orphans, Lord. You've given us everything we need uh, found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and found in the pages of the Scripture, for that matter. So we thank you. We turn our attention to you. We pray that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct uh, us as we go through Genesis 19. There's so much here, Lord. Uh, and I pray that you would build up and edify your church through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of tonight's message is, A Lot Becomes a Little, pun intended. I know it's cheesy, but it's true. A lot, a lot himself starts off with so much potential. Now, a lot of people have the tendency to look at Genesis 19, myself included, and really see the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, or we'll even zoom in on Lot's wife and how she looked back. We'll talk about both of those things tonight, but what I really felt the Lord speaking to me through this chapter was to zoom in on Lot and see the fact that he had so much potential, but he squandered it to go after the things of the world. If you missed our, our message on Lot shopping with his eyes, called Not By Sight, it's a few chapters ago, you can check out our podcast on our website, but listen to it. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at tonight, the fact that he made these decisions and it led to him losing everything, including his spiritual influence. And I want to ask you before we even start, have you ever realized that you didn't meet your full potential? Have you ever had that moment of realization that you missed a huge opportunity to do something great and that moment has passed? It's, it's a bummer to feel this way. It's, it's, to be hit with one of these realizations, it's not a fun thing. Uh, I was hit with one of these realizations my senior year of high school, the last game of football season. Uh, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks and I wasn't expecting it. But I, growing up, I was, I was actually pretty gifted in football. Uh, I played on the schoolyard. I, I played Little League. We called it Pop Warner. I don't know what it's called today. But I was, I was pretty good. I was fast, agile. I could hit really hard. I could read the field. I felt like God really gifted me with the ability to play football. And when it came into high school, uh, junior year rolled around, and I was playing what's called Passing League with the, with the varsity team. And I did really good that first day. And the D-back coach, his name was Coach Locke. I really respected this guy. He, I think he took notice of me and was like excited that I'd be on the team that year. Well, around this same season of life, I started to get into partying a lot more regularly. And what happened was when the fall rolled around, by the time football came around, I didn't even want to play anymore. My dream was to be in the NFL as a kid, like growing up. It was, it was important to me, but by the time it hit my junior year, I was more concerned with partying than I, than I was with football. So I actually didn't play any sports junior year, just kind of slacked off. Senior year rolled around, I jumped on the varsity team, thought I'd have some fun playing football, and I did, had some cool plays, but I was injury prone all year because I didn't train. Uh, and we had a pretty good team. We made it to the second round of the playoffs and we lost. 
And uh, at the end of that game, we were back in the locker room cleaning out our lockers because the season was over. And Coach Locke was going around like shaking hands. And I was one of the last in the locker room. And Coach Locke came around to, to say goodbye to me, basically, you know, good season or whatever. So it was like, hey, Stone, come here. And he shook my hand, and I just, like, had this moment. I just broke down. It hit me. It kind of caught me off guard. And I, I just, I broke down, and I'm like, I'm sorry. I just said sorry to him. And he, he kind of gave me one of them side man hugs. It's okay, Stone, you know, it's all right. And I think he thought I was apologizing because we lost. But I was actually apologizing because in that moment I realized I had wasted so much potential. In fact, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't think I realized fully until that moment how much I wanted to do well for Coach Locke, how much I respected him and really wanted to play well for him and do well on the season, realizing that his expectations, I think, were higher than what I ended up meeting. And I knew in that moment I'd squandered I'd squandered football. Now, there, there are more important things in life than football. God ended up, he, ha, he had his hand on me. He used all this. He redeemed this. I ended up, uh, I, I got a football scholarship, believe it or not, despite the squandered year. I declined it to stay in Tucson, and then I ended up getting saved like that year uh, and stayed in Tucson and uh, started leading worship and stuff. And, and here I am 15 years later. But so God had his hand on me the whole time. But nevertheless, that feeling was unforgettable. And I know today, I never want to experience that feeling standing before Jesus Christ. I never want to stand before the Lord and realize I could have given him so much more. That That I wasted so much potential to really live my life well for him and to make impact for the kingdom of God. D.L. Moody, I love what D.L. Moody said. He said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. What if you go your whole life and realize you tore it up? You were amazing. You were the best. You made a name for yourself. You were infamous because you were so good at something that didn't even matter eternally. It's a scary thought. In this chapter, we're going to see how Lot succeeded in some wrong things. He'll even gain position in an ungodly, wicked city, but squander all of his spiritual potential and really lose pretty much everything in the process. So let's jump right in. Verse 1, it says, The two angels came to Sodom, the two angels that Abram just met with last chapter. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. This is an indication of position. He was a judge or a council city member, city council member. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. So Lot attained position in the city as a judge, as some some sort of city official. They'll refer to him as judge later on in this chapter. But Lot's compromises uh, and ineffective witness to those around him make it clear that he's not the model of godliness. As As we'll see, it becomes real clear that Lot's not someone to emulate if we're pursuing godliness But I will say that this could be the one redeeming factor. This could be the one way in which Lot was exercising what little faith he had. And that was he would sit in the city gate and and look for vulnerable people who he knew would be taken advantage of if they came into Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm believing the best, but he could have just been like, who are these dudes? And random, and the Lord is just orchestrating this thing. That could be what's going on as well here. Um, 
But verse 3, it says he pressed them strongly. No, you guys cannot, you guys cannot stay out in the square. He says, so, so they turned aside to him and they entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Hebrews 13.2 is a, is a pretty interesting verse. It says, uh, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unknowingly, unwittingly. The idea here is like, be hospitable to strangers because you, you don't know who they are. And the, the author of Hebrews wanted to put that in your mind, that what if this is an angel from heaven? What if this is someone who's coming to check out how things are in my life? from heaven. And we see that happening here in Lot's life. These two angels come and he entertains them and they're, they're heavenly messengers sent to check, check things out. It's kind of motivating, right? You see a stranger, someone on the side of the road. Sometimes I'll think if I see these guys, like, especially ones that I haven't seen out there before, like what if he was an angel and he was just kind of seeing how generous Tucson is? It's just a thought that pops into my head because of Hebrews. Uh, verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them, or that we may know them carnally, is what other translations say, to know in a biblical sense, meaning to have physical relations, sexual relations with them. And this really shows us the level of wickedness that Sodom had reached, guys. That all the men of the city, from every quarter of the city, every part of the city, they all came together to do this. It was almost like it was something they did regularly. That the men of, of Sodom and Gomorrah regularly and openly practiced homosexual intercourse and rape of strangers. This is an indication that the measure of sin has, has reached the limit and God is drawing a hard line. When a stranger can't even come into your town without their lives being threatened and potentially being raped by all the men of the city, this is a messed up situation. In fact, it's, this is the origin of the term sodomy or sodomite. is from the town of, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, the city area. Now, I, I want to talk with you guys a little bit about homosexuality. Obviously, it's huge right now. It's in the news. It's a, it's a topic that's very controversial and taboo. But before I do jump into the subject of homosexuality, I just want to say that if you deal with same-sex attraction, okay, not you're practicing, but you, it's something that you deal with. You realize you have this temptation in you. I want to tell you that God loves you tremendously, that God has amazing plans for you, that your purpose and fulfillment is not and will never be found in a sexual relationship. It will be found in Jesus Christ. And that's not only true of you, that's true for every individual, heterosexual, those who deal with heterosexual temptations or homosexual temptations. God has a plan for you. Even in a healthy marriage, that relationship will not fulfill you, people. Only Jesus Christ will fulfill you. So if you deal with homosexual temptations... Don't feel like you're second rate in God's eyes. He loves you tremendously. He didn't mess up when he made you. He has amazing plans for you. And I want to tell you that you are in good company. There are so many amazing brothers and sisters in Christ who have left the lifestyle of homosexuality because they realized it was not fulfilling them and their true fulfillment has been found in Jesus Christ. And they will tell you they have not regretted the decision to walk away from that lifestyle 
and to live for Jesus Christ. One of the resources I can give you is a website called livingout.org, livingout.org. And it's full of amazing stories and testimonies of men and women who walked out of that lifestyle and who are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So with that said, I do want to touch base with regards to the subject of homosexuality and understand, help you guys understand how dangerous it is for a society to embrace the act of homosexual sex as something good, as something healthy. It's, it's a dangerous thing. And I, I, I want to say right out, right out of the gate as well that I don't believe everyone who does support it is demonic and evil. I believe there's a lot of people who mean well, who support homosexuality because they have friends who are gay and, and they're, they're trying to see them with a heart of love and they mean well. The problem is, is they have removed the Word of God and what the Word of God says about love, what the Word of God says about what truth is. We cannot properly love someone apart from the truth. So I don't believe everyone who does have this position is someone that is my enemy or that they're evil. In fact, I have friends, even family members, who take this position. They support homosexual marriages. Uh, and I don't hate them for it. And I understand where the, that it's coming from good intentions. Nevertheless, they're misguided intentions because they're not guided and directed by the Word of God. If I could paint a picture for you about the dangers of homosexuality being accepted in a community, I want you to picture that sexual sin is like a giant lake, a giant body of water. Let's say it's up in Mount Lemmon, Rose Canyon, but it was huge, big enough to drown and destroy the city of Tucson. Let's say that sexual sin is represented in that lake and all kinds of homos- all kinds of sin, right? All, anything that people have imagined that is in the hearts of men and women represented in this lake. Well, I want to tell you the only thing keeping this lake of sexual sin and immorality from destroying our society is a levee, is a dam that God has put in place. And this dam, this levee, is known as the biblical definition of marriage. God has set in place a rule, a standard that says sex is designed for one man and one woman to enjoy safely in the bonds of marriage. That is God's design for sex. That is the the hard established levy holding back the sexual sin in our society. And what our society wants to do is go up and start editing and poking and cutting away at this levy. And like I said, a lot of these well-meaning people, they just want to move it back a little bit. Now, what these well-meaning people don't realize is, number one, no, no person has any right to establish these levies. Right and wrong is not established by humans. It's established by God. It has to be established by someone outside of our society, someone who transcends our society, and God's the only one who can do that. So that's number one, that they don't realize. The second thing they don't realize my well-meaning, my well-intending friends, is that behind them and their little minor edit to this levy is a whole line of people with all these other horrible sexual sins who want to edit that levy, who want to edit that standard. Well, we just want to move it to where homosexual monogamous marriage is okay as well. That's all we want to do, but you don't realize that as soon as you start cutting away the, the levy, it's only a matter of time before all of the sexual sin comes rushing in and destroys our society. And if you don't believe me, look at history. The Greeks, the Romans, are a few that people will point to and say homosexuality was rampant at the end of their peak. 
as, as civilizations. Sodom and Gomorrah become yet one more of many examples in history where society reaches this level where that standard isn't in place and the city is destroyed because of sexual immorality and sexual sin. It's a dangerous thing, guys, when you start trying to move these boundaries that only God can establish. Verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance they shut the, and shut the door after them and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Um, a good idea, Lot. Not. <laughs> Sorry, that was a total 90s phrase. Um, but you're starting to see how much Lot is lacking by way of moral compass. Like, really, that's the idea you come with? Here, kill my daughters in the most horrific way possible. Just don't harm these friends. The commentators will, will say how, well, uh, hospitality in that region, in that day, was huge. And you would actually put your guests above your family. But still, I'm not buying it. There's, there is absolutely no reasonable explanation for this. It's inexcusable what Lot is suggesting here. And I think we have to be careful not to assume that because God is delivering Lot, that God is okay with what's happening here, with, with, what, God, with what Lot even suggested. Look at, if you want to know what God thinks about this, just look at what happens. I'll, I'll give you a spoiler alert here. What actually happens is God's like, no, that's not, what, that's not the plan, Lot. In fact, I'm going to kill the rapists. I'm going to destroy the rapists. And guess what? The only two lives I will save are the two girls that you were just about to sacrifice to these horrible people. If you want to look at how God feels, look at the outcome. That's what God put his hand on this. He's like, Lot, no, that is not. I care about these precious girls. And these people will be judged. So I know, I know a guy who, who speaks politically, and he, he believes that we should start judging rapists, those who do like aggressive physical violations of other people, with the death penalty, with capital punishment. And I... I, I, I kind of think that might be a good idea. If, if, every, if every rapist out there who was, who was to the point where they were going to physically harm and violate another human being, if they thought they realized they were taking their life into their own hands when they did that, that might be a good thing. Verse 9, But they said, Stand back. This fellow came to sojourn, and he has be become a judge. And now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. So these were some strong angels. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. You'd think they would freak out that they were blind. But they continue to grope for the door. This really shows you how, how sexual temptation, how sin in general, will just take over your life. I mean, they could care less that they can't see. They just want to gratify the flesh. And it, I, I picture just a bunch of zombies just controlled by the, their desires, groping to the point where they're like so worn out. I just can't find the door. They're still going. It's insane. We, our sin really knows no bounds, guys. It is a... If, if we don't keep our sin in check, it will take over. Verse 12, Then the men said to Lot, 
the angels, that is. Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone who uh, you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So Lot, as I said, has squandered so much. He's made so many decisions compromising his walk of faith that when it finally comes time to step up and lead spiritually, they think he's joking. They laugh. Like, yeah, that's funny, pops. All right, we'll see you, see you later. Man, he's getting crazy. They just think he's kidding. And he, he literally just has to leave because he knows he's running out of time. But there's a real contrast here between Lot's leadership and spiritual authority compared to Abraham's. Remember Abraham just a few chapters ago? Abraham lived what he believed so much and lived it out in such a way that the men respected him to the point that they were willing to get circumcised in, as adults. Abraham's like, God came to me and he told me something that we should do to, to honor him. And he explained it to them. And they, the fact that they were willing to go through with it shows that these men were willing to follow Abraham anywhere. Abraham had spiritual authority. He had leadership uh, authority in their life. Whereas Lot here, it's too little too late. And his leadership, his attempted leadership is just scoffed at. They just laugh. Oh, yeah, you're going to get all Jesus on me now? Pfft, that's funny coming from you. You can talk about God's judgment now, Lot. Okay, I think you're just kidding. And I'm going to ask you, how is your spiritual influence? How, how is your ability to speak into the, to the lives of others? Do you have any influence? Do you inspire people to live for God? Do they see your actions? Do they hear your words? And they think, I want to know that Jesus that they know. Or do they see your life and maybe think, maybe Jesus isn't that great. Maybe I, I don't really need Jesus. If that person has Jesus and that's how they act, how is your spiritual influence? When you talk about Jesus, do they listen up or do they laugh? Do they brush it off? I'd say a good description of authority, guys, so whether or not you have authority, is if people really truly care about what you have to say. I think that's a good indication of authority in somebody's life. If they're willing to listen to you and they care about what, you have, what your input is, there are different types of authority that you could have. Some of you guys, a lot of you guys work in, in, in various roles and jobs. You have bosses and they have bosses. And you, you see one type of authority every day, and that's positional authority. And that's when people listen because they're supposed to. If you have positional authority, you're a boss of some sort, you oversee people, people listen to you because they're supposed to or because they have to. There's relational authority. It's another type of authority. And that's when people listen to you because they like you. Your friends, celebrities have a lot of relational authority because everybody likes them and they think they're the expert now all of a sudden on subjects that they really have not studied or looked into at all. But they're going to talk about it because people care about what they have to say. That's relational authority. Then there's intellectual authority, where people respect what you know. Well, this dude's smart. He has a degree in this. I want to ask him some questions. They'll listen to you because they respect what you know. Then there's the highest 
type of authority that you can attain in someone else's life, and it's called moral authority. And it's when people respect what you do. It's when people listen to you because they respect how you live. Do you have moral authority? Do you have this going on in your life? It's the most effective authority that you can exercise in someone else's life. The Bible calls this authority holiness. Holiness. Which just means you're set apart for God's use. But it means that people see it. I read a book that was talking about moral authority and they brought up the example of Mother Teresa. This little old lady, she wasn't like a great orator or anything, but she was invited to come speak to the White House and it was packed. And she had a standing ovation. And when she started talking, she brought up how abortion is wrong. She started talking about this. And believe it or not, people at the White House in a let's just say when the, the current president was the Clintons, Bill, Bill and Hillary, were, who did not support it, they were definitely not pro-life, they, she received a standing ovation under that administration. They stood up because of the moral authority she had. And everybody applauded her except for the Clintons, of course. They sat there looking around, wondering if any cameras were on them, probably. But, um, but Abraham spent years building this moral authority. And the men in his life, the people in his life saw it and they respected it. Lot spent years choosing comfort over God's will and he compromised. He squandered his authority. As I, as I said, he squandered his spiritual potential. Don't do that, guys. Do not go after the things of the world. I want you to think about your life's decisions and how they will impact your ability to share Jesus with other people. That job choice, that relationship choice, what you spend your money on. We have to be careful. There's a lot in the gray area. We have freedom in Christ. But we should ask ourselves, will this compromise my moral authority in the lives of those around me? Will this harm my witness for Jesus Christ in my life? Lot asked none of those questions. And he made decision after decision after decision to where when he finally brought up something spiritual, they scoffed at him and they laughed at him. If you truly love the people around you guys, and you want to save them from the judgment to come, you want to influence them, then walk in holiness. It's good to be friends with people in the world. And I think, I think we sometimes try so hard to be friends with people of the world that without even realizing it, sometimes we compromise our moral authority. But I want to tell you, you need to do a better job at standing out rather than fitting in. Don't get me wrong. Like I said, it is good to be friends with people in the world, to have relational authority but never at the expense of your moral authority. 